Red Cloaks Radio is a production of the Boston Red Cloaks. Let's go one, two, vamos! Hi, this is Jesse. Welcome back to Red Cloaks Radio, joined today by my co-hosts. Martha from Boston Red Cloaks. And Karen from Boston Red Cloaks. And we're on the edge of our seat with our second episode of My Body, My Story, and Marsha is joining us again. Hello, Marsha. Hello. Thank you for inviting me and for allowing me to participate in this work. Welcome back. (laughs) Thank you so much for helping us really talk through what it's like to actually have an abortion and even to have more than one abortion, which many, many women have. What we would love to do is for listeners, if you're jumping in here, we want to encourage you to listen to part one and and find that episode. um, And then to go ahead and hear where we are now, just so you have the flow of our conversation. So Marsha, we left off and and you set off in life, you had a new job and you went out there, you were in college. And I'm just curious what maybe your first job was. What was your area of work? Well, um, I come from a very working class family. I have a sister who's three years younger than I am. And my parents could not afford to send two of us to college at the same time. So between my sophomore year and junior year in college, I had a job because I felt my sister should have a chance and my parents felt she should have a chance. Um, I dropped out and went to school at night in Massachusetts Um, and I worked for a social service agency as a case aide because at that point I was thinking about a career in maybe social work, maybe psychology, a major in social, a major in psych. So I, that was the kind of job I got. And um, it, I had held that job for the year until I had enough money to start over again as a junior. And because I had gone to school at night during that time, at the same time, I was able to start a second semester junior and finish in three semesters. Yeah, going to school and valuing your education has a whole different level of meaning when you're paying for it. It's, it's just, it's really very different. Yeah. yeah. And then, so you stayed in Massachusetts for a while, but then you end up in Ohio and you're married. And I'm curious about, you know, why Ohio and what does it look like for you being out there? So I went to Case Western Reserve. Um, and went back there after my dropout year. And I had gone there, um, I was recruited because, and maybe this piece should come out of the editing process. What I later learned from a graduate school professor was that they were looking to increase or improve their reputation So they recruited a lot of Jewish kids from the East Coast. And so that's how I ended up there. Um, And I met a man, a boy, um, through a friend of mine who's been responsible for both my husbands. (laughs) She says I owe her. My college roommate, who's been my friend for more than 50 years, Um, introduced me to this guy and I'm Jewish and he was not. Those are the era of blah, 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 blah. Um, 
And my college roommate and I have been trying to figure out what did we do? How did we marry those guys? What, what was going on? We haven't figured it out. And we think we're the only two who can help each other get clear about that. But uh, we did watch My Fair Lady recently and said, well, no wonder we didn't know how to do anything. You weren't <laughs> supposed to. So that's all background. But um, I stayed at Case Western and got a graduate degree in sociology because I decided what I really wanted to do um, was teach sociology at the college level in a community college because I thought community colleges were the promise of American education. And um, I did get a job teaching sociology in a community college, one of the early ones in Ohio. And my husband was then in the process of protecting himself from the draft. Uh, so he ended up teaching in a high school and um, we became politically active together. Um, so we were, or now I look back and say, I was planning for us to spend the summer in Europe in 1971 before we moved to upstate New York. And upstate New York meant we were gonna go back to the country, which is what people did in those days. In the country we were going back to was Woodstock because we had a friend who lived there and she said, come. So that was the plan. And I got pregnant that spring. Um, our contraception was, as I recall at this time, just spermicidal foam. And so I got pregnant and I knew, I knew absolutely that I'm going to Europe and this is the trip of our life and we need to do this. And so I went to my physician and a man and I said, I, and I had to have a pregnancy test. You couldn't buy one. Remember this, everybody noticed this. You couldn't get a pregnancy test outside of a doctor's office. So he took a pregnancy test and I was in fact pregnant. And he said, well, congratulations. I said, no, I, I don't wanna be pregnant. And he said, well, in, in the, not the back of my mind, in the front of my mind was the understanding that I could go to New York because this was a time when abortion was legal in New York. I could go to New York and have an abortion in New York. And I said to him, I don't wanna be pregnant. This was not planned. Um, and if you don't help me, I'm getting on a plane and going to New York. And he said, well, I would rather not do that. I would feel better about you staying here. And I said, well, how is it possible for me to get an abortion here? And he explained that if I, uh, that I needed two psychiatrists to attest to the fact that I was suicidal. 
and that uh, he could recommend psychiatrists who he knew would sign affidavits to that. I assume they were affidavits to that effect. I, I don't know that they went anywhere. Maybe they are in the hospital records for me, but maybe they're in the hospital records for the hospital. I have no idea. Um, but I said, but I, I, I don't feel suicidal. But if you tell me that's what has to be, then I'll tell them that so that they can write it. But I'm also going to tell them it's not true. And my plan is to go to New York. And there's a bridge in Cleveland called the High Level Bridge, which being the drama queen that is in probably every little girl's imagination, I said, well, if you need me to tell you, I'm going to jump off the high level bridge. I remember that. <laughs> it just resonates in my mind. Then I'm telling you that, but I'm also telling you that I'll get on a plane and go to New York. And my physician here wants me to be treated in the hospital here. So that's why I'm doing this. And I had a hospital abortion. In Ohio? In Ohio. Okay. What, what uh, circuitous shenanigans <laughs> are required, right? So it's, it's not legal, but you know, it goes to the point that some people make that you know, legal or not, sometimes there's a way, right? And what's important is you have to have healthcare in order to have that special privilege. And I think of all the girls and women who didn't have health care and either had infants or had septic abortions or whatever else the bad consequences of that are. And, you know, I think we have an obligation to say to people, this could happen, this could happen. And we need to create a network that says we will protect women. Because you had these two different experiences of, you know, in hospital and not in hospital, trained medical provider who is definitely a medical provider and other provider who you really didn't know what their background or training was. Um, can you speak a little bit about the contrast in those experiences? You know, I haven't thought specifically, I didn't have that in mind. What my initial response is, it was fucking horrible to have to go through either one of those circumstances. And again, it's reinforcing the bad girl stuff. Even though I was a married woman, it was, that's, you know, I had to demean myself to lie about myself in order to have the support that I needed to do it in a way that seemed somewhat safer to me than having to get on a plane and go to New York and find somebody in the phone book and you know all that stuff. It just, it's a way of imprisoning women and both those procedures showed up in that way. It's, it's just, it's extremely striking to think about a doctor who cared enough about you to not want you to go out of state, 
but basically felt like there would be no impact of having you lie. Even when you said, I'm not going to lie. Like I'll say the words, but I'm not going to lie. I'm still going to tell the truth around the words. Right. Like, right, right. and then you think about that network and I can't, it's like, you know, a literature piece in the two short stories. There's still the men being in charge either way. Yeah. yeah. It's still playing by men's rules. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and uh, apparently, you know, some women also who, who think like men, um, you know, just thinking back to those days, I'm, I'm of that generation. I know from what you speak, I had absolutely no um, sex education in school or from my mother. Um, all we had in the house was a sense of creeping fear that our lives would end because our father would do something, you know, dreadful to us. It wasn't until 19, what, 1969 before married couples could get contraceptive? Yeah, it was in 1965 in Griswold versus Connecticut. That's insane. I, that, that was like almost 30 years after World War II ended. What's serious? And, and at the same time, when you were mentioning no, no, um, no pregnancy tests, no in-home pregnancy tests, no, no easy tests, there, there was a mass slaughter of millions of rabbits to determine whether or not a person was, was pregnant. So what were you supposed to do? Just keep a farm of rabbits in your backyard and help other people out? It, it was just, uh, I mean, the science wasn't there, but also the science could have been there. Well, I, um, you'll meet my friend, Anne, and she and I, uh, during the period I, we lived in Woodstock from 71 to 75 were um, a group, part of a group of women who started something called the Woodstock Women's Health Collective. And we somehow managed to get a drug detail salesperson to sell us the pregnancy test kit that was sold to doctor's offices. And uh, we made those pregnancy tests available to the high school girls who came to us because you needed a doctor's office to go to to have a pregnancy test. But we made clear that we would, if you have $5, that'd be nice because it would have covered rebuying more of them. But if you didn't have $5, we did it anyway. Um, and we, before I knew it was the importance of statistics, we kept data, we created data so that we could argue for the need for healthcare and particularly women's healthcare uh, to Planned Parenthood, for example, because there was no, in the county we were in, there was no place to go for a clinic because one of the two major hospitals was run by the Catholic Church. Yeah, we were part of the underground for a couple of years. One way or the other, people are going to end their pregnancies for whatever reason, it's going to happen. And so the, the network that was there, those networks will grow back. Yes. You know, there's just, there is no choice because, because a lot of women would like to live and not die. Even right. if they're, you know, even if they're pregnant, they like to carry on with their life and they're going to find a way. And some of them, some of them will not be safe. Right. There's also a need, I, I, I strongly believe, to connect the, the right to abortion with um, the right to economic justice, because also for me, it's, it's an economic issue. Oh, absolutely. If, if, you're, if you're faced with 
um, a pregnancy unplanned um, for whatever reasons. You know, you're not well, you're not educated, you're in the midst of your education, you don't like the person who got you pregnant, all kinds of other things. You, if without that access, your life is going to be miserable for too long. Right. Um, right. Because it, it, it affects everything you can do where you live in, 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 in safe housing, how you dress, who you know. Um, it's, it's imperative, I believe, also, along with the emotional aspect of facing an unwanted pregnancy, there is the compounded aspect of the economic disaster awaiting you. Right. Plus, I said earlier, the, the whole who has access to health care and what kind of health care they have access to is just, you know, staggering, staggering that we're so far back in, in, and, and that we've gone backwards. We've clearly yeah. gone backwards. You, you talked a little earlier in, the, in our first part of the conversation about feeling like maybe the ball was dropped, but I just have to say that like, I'm a, I'm a slightly different age and like, I don't feel like the ball is dropped by any one generation. I feel like every generation has tried to move the ball forward. When you have the experience and then you go out there and try to make the world better or easier, or kinder for the next person, getting those pregnancy kits into someone's hands, it is moving the ball forward. That's moving the ball forward. The passage of Roe could make it feel like in a linear world that we live in, we've moved past something, we've improved. Yep. If today they're coming for our abortion providers and clinics, then tomorrow they're coming for our contraception. Yes. And, and then the next day, it'll be something else. It'll be coming for our credit cards. We'll be back in 19, the 1960s where women could not get a credit card in their own names. And therefore they had no way to do anything. Or a mortgage or yeah, eventually exactly. the ability to vote. It's just, it, un, it unravels. Martha, Leticia, how are these things striking you? I came to this country in 96. I don't know anything what you're talking about because in Mexico, where I am from, things were different, I think. I have never heard about uh, rabbits or something done to rabbits to get to know that people were pregnant. I knew that my mother and my all my relatives would go to the doctor, would either pee in a cup or would get a blood uh, sample and then they would know they were pregnant. I knew there were midwives or something like that. They were called comadronas and those were the ones that would go, you would go to and they would uh, help you with an abortion or you would go to your local market and there were a lot of infusions that they did and that would help you get an abortion. But they were really, it was tricky because if you put too much, you would end up either sterile or dead because you would bleed to death. I don't know what there were in those infusions in those, there were no drugs, but it was all herbs and 
well, you know, medicines come from herbs. So they knew what they were doing, some of them, but some didn't know, or they told you, well, you have to do a teaspoon. And people would do a tablespoon because they wanted to be on the safe side. But also it was hush-hush. Nobody spoke about it. Uh, you were pregnant. It was like the end of the like the end of the world for not only for the woman but for the parents and for the in-laws and the man but everybody all the family was involved and it was a major revolution and this world would go would get out of hand and as in here I suppose people would would get married that was the solution, magical solution. You're married, let's keep on living. You have to have the kids. I mean, why? But one of the things that you were saying about the hospital you were in was run by the church. There was some issues. I remember, and this is a different theme, but in Texas, my son was in the hospital. And he left the intensive care unit. My son was very sick. They knew he was going to die. But because it was a a religious hospital, we had to leave the hospital in less than three days. So I had to run all around Dallas looking for a place for hospice because uh, or somebody that would help me. So I don't think that generations are dropping the ball. The thing is, that religion gets so involved in everything, which it shouldn't. I mean, especially in this country, they get so involved because you have in your donor bill, in God we trust, and everything, you have an invocation, you have God is involved in everything. And so they feel that they can tell you what to do, how to think. I think that is the problem, even though it's, supposedly separated it's not separated enough living in the states has always blown my mind but or in this time and age my head is exploding more because 20 years ago i came with my husband and it was supposedly only a three-year experience that has become a 26 year it has evolved into a different country into a different mindset into a more extreme experience than it was 20 years ago. So that's a good question for Marcia. Marcia, when you think about where we are today with your own experiences right before Roe versus Wade came down from the Supreme Court, and then here we are on, I don't know, what feels like the eve of maybe seeing it rejected. Right. Do, what do you see as the big changes? You know, Martha is talking about the impact of religion. What, what do you feel like are the big trends? What I'm concerned about and why I said we dropped the ball by not telling the stories is that people don't understand the great risk that this presents to women. And one of my husband's nephews has two sets of girl twins. But I think of those girls and what is the world gonna be like for them? My own daughter doesn't have children, but there are enough close family members that I look at them and say, 
what what will the future be? Will they have to deal with this? Do we, and, and what scares me is I don't see us accessing a Supreme Court again in favor of choice for a very long time. If they're willing to throw out the kinds of things that they throw out with Roe, what is sacred and what is safe? Well said. And, and the telling the stories, if it's to your daughter or your niece or someone listening today, passing those stories on really does have an impact because people can do something. Right now, we can all be advocating to pass the Women's Health Protection Act. Right. So instead of relying on the Supreme Court, we can send our postcards, call our senators, call our representatives, and continue to share our stories. So if someone's listening and you have an experience that you would like to share, we would love to invite you. You can reach us at bostonredcloaks at gmail.com. And Marsha, thank you so much for spending time with us and for sharing. It really makes a difference. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for all the work that all of you do. Everyone have a very empowering day. You've been listening to Red Cloaks Radio, a production of the Boston Red Cloaks. Find us at bostonredcloaks.com 